Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. In the bond market, we shape up as follows. Treasuries, tens, yields, unchanged, 2.632% on a two-year note, 2.463%. That's where I want to start this morning, at the front end of the yield curve. And we have a great guest to do it with, Jerome Schneider, PIMCO head of short-term bond portfolios. Good morning to you, Jerome. Good morning, good morning. Let's just start with two lines that I picked up from the notes I saw in your most recent research. Short-term bond strategy to manage two things, potential defense in volatile markets and the optionality to move to higher risk allocations opportunistically. Let's just walk through those two issues right now. Why do I need the potential defense in volatile markets with vols so low? So the question that remains for investors is how long is this economic cycle going to persist for? And admittedly, the financial conditions have eased quite a bit since the concerns of the fourth quarter. But monetary policy is only one ingredient to to the market conditions that help perpetuate positive returns going forward. Ultimately, what we're going to be dealing with is continued bouts of illiquidity, continued increases of volatility within the marketplace. And what's really happened is investors, whether you're retail or or, or institutional, have to be thinking about returns or expected returns from the construct of not only thinking about, hey, I could earn 5%, 7% or even more, obviously, historically in equities or emerging markets, those higher, higher beta allocations, but doing so with higher volatility expectations. In other words, we need to calibrate expectations for returns on a risk-adjusted basis taking into account more volatility due to the uncertainty within the marketplace. So at the moment, volatility is really low, cross-asset. Exactly. Uh, Bonds, FX, etc. But think about how quick that healing process happened. And think how quickly, how many bouts of illiquidity we've had simply over the past three years. And illiquidity, I'm using as a proxy here for volatility, but the volatility could emanate from politics. It could could emanate from left-tail risks such as China or trade. And while these risks have actually been elongated, the runways of these risks, whether from monetary policy, trade policy, um, or even Brexit, they've elongated. The uncertainty could actually persist for quite some time uh, over over the next few years. So while we have a relative period of warmth, uh, as, as spring approaches, don't be don't be fooled, and we should be yeah. prepared for that higher volatility. I just figured this out. Are you here to do a double? Is he going to be on the real yield today at one no, p.m. No, on Bloomberg not. Television? No, he's not. But you're just you're, this is your power. This is the power, Pharaoh, well, booking the brightest guy in the it's world. Friday, short term paper. Yeah. What the commercial paper used to be the the thing we looked at the pulse. What's the new commercial paper? I'll tell you a story. The guys like you look at every day. I'll tell you a story, Tom. It's really <clears throat> interesting. So two years ago, when I was sitting in these seats, we were talking about the evolution of money market funds, money yeah. market fund reform, and putting people to sleep, telling them that the end of the money market fund world was coming soon. <laughs> and we saw a trillion dollars worth of prime money market fund assets. Mm-hmm. Those that buy commercial paper go and buy government-only money market funds. Those that buy T-bills, de-risking. Right. So the story now has actually changed over the past few months. People have been lulled to sleep that they want to de-risk. They're de-risking out of these higher volatility mm-hmm. asset classes, equities. And they're putting their money, ironically, back into prime money market funds. There's been $100 billion of new assets put into prime money market funds for an incremental return of just a few basis points <clears throat> 
over the safety of T-bills. So why would you do that? And I think ultimately, the world of commercial paper has once again become rather complacent to the to the notion of any type of credit risk, and we have to be more yeah. discerning in terms of credit risk. That's We've a clearly really that important statement. Um, you can steal that for the real yield. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Very, very I important. appreciate that. seeds here for so, you. So let's go to the next line. To, to have the optionality to move to higher risk allocations opportunistically, are you looking for another December kind of moment? Not an end of cycle moment, but a moment where that risk aversion builds <clears throat> The faith in the cycle fades rapidly, and you get to deploy some capital into risk assets. So the starting point of analysis in portfolio management is diversification, but more importantly, managing downside risks. And we've really used that managing downside risks as beginning in 2018 at PIMCO, where we were really thinking about uh, focusing on corporate credit and differentiating corporate credit from the beta, the index picking specific stories that we liked, under-accentuating those that we didn't, and diversifying. Now, granted, this was a process that began in late 2017, early 2018, and we didn't know when, ex- when actually the opportunity would, would persist. But we thought you know, there would be some, some tail risks along the way, maybe some rude awakenings. But ultimately, the, gro- the slowing growth that we were seeing in the global economy would translate into opportunity. When it happened in the fourth quarter, we had excess liquidity. We saw some inclinations that liquidity was being dampened back in October off of our short-term team at PIMCO. And at the res- as a result, we became more cautious from a liquidity standpoint. When those opportunities percent, uh, became opportunistic, we found that the recalibration in, 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 in uh, spreads wider actually made things pretty good on a risk-adjusted basis to take some of our underweights back to market weight. In other words, some of the richness in the market was not really attractive. We sold it, and then as an active manager, we found an opportunity to actually redeploy capital when it became cheap, and more importantly, earned a liquidity premium, or excess return, by providing the market liquidity when traditional liquidity providers like banks, et cetera, weren't there. So you've played it really well the last few months. You bought the weakness of December. I just wondered to what degree you're fading the strength of the first quarter of 2019. So we've seen credits move in dramatic fashion. Some credits that were priced at LIBOR plus 40 you know, six to nine months ago and blew out to LIBOR plus 300 or more are back to LIBOR plus 50. So there's been a, almost a round trip. So you're right. This is a this is a market where you want to be trading, simply focusing on uh, credit work from the bottom up. And, and that's what we're doing in our corporate credit side. So there is a there's basically mm-hmm. a momentum now to take a breath, let's right. find some opportunities to potentially be more defensive at this point in, in time. In 2006, people were screaming for seven basis points, 10 basis points. Are we back to that silliness? No, we're where not. Where people are trying to find the next 10 basis points, it's, it's, hundreds it's, of a percentage point. It's more fundamental now. So that was more structured, the leverage in, right. in, the, in the system was structured. Now it's more fun to, fundamental, whereby we have to differentiate mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, the cream from the, from the rest of the, from the rest of the product and, yeah. and and as a result that just takes homework it takes resources and and as a result having diversification finding other opportunities to earn spread and in income as we're doing yeah. in mortgages some high quality asset backed securities that actually offers you know, plenty of plenty of uh, avenues and more importantly i think and this is the thing thomas there's no real reason to reach for yield. When you have portfolios that can yield between 3 and 3.5%, those are actually pretty attractive in a world right. where dividends are less than 2%. So why take the why take equity risk at this point okay. in time? Jerome, thank you so much. Jerome, Jerome thank Schneider you. with us with PIMCO uh, as well. joy for John Farrell and me always to have Brian Weiser uh, in our studios with Pivotal Research and, of course, brilliant work on that linkage of advertising into social. We learned a few weeks ago that he had 
gone to the dark side and returned to the Death Star. He'd left the south side. Of Group M, where he is uh, helping them, not so much with messaging, but just thinking about what's out there. And the first thing we've got to talk about is the absolute brilliance is there's not one office dog at Group M, is there? <laughs> How many are there? Well, it, I work out of the Portland, Oregon office of one of our agencies, uh, Mindshare. And we have three dogs. Three you dogs. have a three-dog night or is a three-dog three day. At least, at, at, yeah. We need a dog in the office. And and to be clear, the one of the dogs wears a bow tie every day like tell, Tom. Tell me you called him Tom. No, his name is Cooper, I think. Cooper. Yeah. That's cute. But it's a wonderful environment. It really is. I, well, talk to me about how different it is. You used to cover these companies on the south side. I think you had a sell on WPP once upon a time. I had sells. I had buys. <laughs> My position on uh, the durability of the agency model never changed. I had argued, even when I had sell ratings on every agency holding company, I argued I was probably their greatest long-term champion <laughs> in the sense that I believed in the durability in a way that uh, I think very few people uh, in, in equity markets. Yeah, I'll vouch for that. I heard that. Yeah, absolutely. What's the state of advertising right now? I mean, it's Facebook, Google, Facebook, Google, yeah. Facebook, Google. Do you go in and try to change that with the new WPP after Sir Martin? Or do you, do you live with Facebook? No, well, I mean, here's the thing. And, <clears throat> and I think uh, when I joined, uh, I worked for another holding company in 2003 to 2010. And when I showed up there, also coming from Wall Street, the weird thing was how everyone was complaining about how dependent they were on television, how bad it was. That they yes, had no fact. alternatives. Yes, now they and, do. Well, they have alternative exactly. And but the point is that even then, every advertiser needed right. to think what was our alternative. And cinema, for example, was something that was held out as a hope, right? The idea that you could put mm. in, put money into in, on screen advertising in different environments. Right, right. And then, of course, the internet was considered an alternative. There will be alternatives, and every advertiser needs to think of the best alternative to negotiate agreement. You Always. have been more than anyone I know strongest on you know what TV will survive, et cetera. Now, there's certain networks. I'll lead with NBC Universal who are saying we need fewer ads in prime time mm -hmm. or on YouTube, they have those silly ads where you hit mm -hmm. skip ad to yep. get through them. That that's a guy like your, it's your fault. We're seeing those ads. <laughs> what is the new Brian Weezer attention span? Well, I four mean, seconds to be clear. I think that clutter is a significant problem. And I think that individual It doesn't take thought leadership to know that know John that. and I are living it. I know, but I think every advertiser has to think differently about whether or not they should be allocating as much money to uh, spots and dots, for lack of a better do, characterization. Do, do you guys know how much we hate that garbage cluttering up everything out there? We're not going to commercial break now, are we? No, I know, no, but, but, but it's like, but John, it's like, call, it's call like Colin football Kittle Black. people. I mean, can you put any more ads on the uniforms well, of can the English can, football can players? Can I ask this question? To what degree have we established a bit of a false economy whereby the advertiser believes that they're getting clicks and engagement, but actually there's nothing Absolutely. behind it. So this is arguably the most important thing when it comes to, uh, uh, well, a lot of the people I work with, the things they're focusing on. It's things like viewability of ads. It's things like uh, knowing that ads were actually engaging uh, with consumers. Unfortunately, the industry is really good at optimizing trees and not so good at optimizing forests. And what that means practically is, uh, there's a focus on keeping costs down, which means quality may also go down. It's really hard to justify that. Let's just say you're, uh, you could own the entirety of an ad block, and maybe that ad block might be a 30-second block instead of two minutes. Yeah, That might be worth five times or ten times as much. The problem is so much of the industry is so focused on the cost per unit 
And that focus on the individual unit is a big problem. And we actually need to, in what my position, we need to help marketers think more holistically about how to optimize the entirety of what they're doing. So it is a problem, and I think people in my position are trying to help solve it. Bloomberg surveillance. Is that the plug? Go the distance. <laughs> Radio is a really strong medium. Actually, in all seriousness, I mean, but that's a good example that... Uh, radio and audio, more generally speaking, is something that more marketers should be thinking of. Because, As, oh, stop. They're doing, I mean, we have been humbled by the success of our podcast. John and I collectively fell off the chair when Bank of America yep. first stepped up and said, we believe in your project. Apple Music, Spotify, and the whole thing. There's a they're ton of interest right now. Brian, they're doing audio because they don't have t time to screw around with video, right? Yep. Well, I, I think that, frankly, that because television and video-based advertising, it, it is expensive at a per-unit basis, is perceived as being cluttered. Uh, there is a real problem, especially with younger audiences, in terms of reaching them on traditional TV. Your reach and frequency curves look all out of whack. There's a lot of interest in audio. Now, that said, I could have said that five years ago, and radio, broadly defined, barely grew, right? There was a shift to spend to Spotify, to Pandora to some degree, but the industry collectively didn't grow. That said, we can still advocate for, hey, marketer, if you haven't thought of this, you really need to. Well, let's talk about the privacy scandal that has engulfed the likes of Facebook over the last 12 <clears throat> months. How has that changed things for your clients? So every brand has to think, whether they think or not they should be thinking, about whether or not risks and rewards of working with any given media partner are worthwhile, right? And so when it comes to the privacy issues with Facebook in particular, but more generally, we call it brand safety, right? Uh, brands have to consider if their association with a media owner has a negative effect, or if because a consumer might see, they, they might be self-loathing essentially, and while they're consuming the medium, think, I hate being on this medium, and I hate the advertisers who are making this possible. I mean, that can happen, but <laughs> more generally, uh, there's a risk of association with media owners for, to uh, in the minds of people who are not using the platform, right? Enabling bad behaviors, enabling societal problems, whatever. Every brand has to consider whether or not their brand is tarnished by any association. The vast majority of advertisers have not considered that they are negatively impacted at this point in time. But that is the way to think about it. Again, even in my prior role, I still would have said... <laughs> Facebook and the likes are going to keep growing because that's not a connection that's but, easy But let's to think about private data as a currency. At some point, private data as a currency is going to become so expensive that the advertiser and advertising incrementally is going to have to get more expensive. Ah, let's see, yes. Okay, now I see what you're saying. So I would argue that every brand needs to make sure that if they can't persuade a consumer to supply willingly their data to the brand for use in targeting, they probably don't deserve it. And that goes back to the whole idea of what is a brand? A brand is supposed to be a mark of trust. A brand is supposed to be a mark of why a consumer should want to engage. Wait, wait, wait. He think, Farrell thinks this is an interview. You're here to consult. What does radio need to do to stay radio? It's, it's vibrant right now. I mean, come on. What? Give me some thought leadership on how to drive Bloomberg surveillance forward over the next five years. Oh, yeah, I know. Well, I mean, I'm going to bridge these two comments here because uh, to the extent that if you can imagine a world where concerns around privacy are enhanced, where laws and regulations are more pronounced with respect to how data is shared and right. used, the relative advantage of using different media will evolve. 
radio doesn't quite have that issue, at least traditional right. audio. Now that said, I think that every advertiser wants to find ways to use data that they have. I would argue an advertiser's best position to do, gather a ton of data right. on the insights of consumers using a given media, use a ton of data on the output of an impact, and then let the art take the work in the middle. Yeah, we did all that. And we came yeah. up with John's TV platform, The Real Yield. Well, they, I mean, they just go. want pure fixed income. That's all they want. Is a, Brian Weezer, this has been painful. Thank you so hey, Brian, much. Brian, thank you. With Group M um, okay. as well. And congratulations I mean, on the new role. Thank you very much. I know it's been a while. We just haven't seen each other. Did you know what I was doing there? Go the distance. I, I heard you. Do, do you know what? what I'm... You have no idea. Do go, I, go, go, go the distance. Go the distance. distance. Yeah. Field of dreams. Okay. <laughs> Ray wow. Liotta, out of the cornfield? No? No idea. Okay. Thank you. I, I mean, it works. Brian Weezer, thank you so much. I'm sorry, but is I, that, I is think that this field is... Field of Dreams? Yeah, that's a baseball movie. Yeah, I've seen that movie. Okay, right. But anyways, I, I, I'm just I struggling with the association. And Brian's what are you really, doing? The association is, is you, you just, you work into it. It's like, you know, it's heaven. No, it's Bloomberg surveillance. I mean, oh. we almost went with that phrase. I have been so, so, so waiting for this conversation. We're going to go for you two hours nonstop. I'm kidding, of course. But we're going to carve out on a Friday clear language on what's all the rage. And it may be one ear in nanotechnology and this, that, and the other. But once again, it is the use and abuse of the phrase artificial intelligence. All of this goes back to a meeting in 1956 at Dartmouth College where the, the brains of Pittsburgh showed up from the University of Pittsburgh in a small school called Carnegie Mellon University. And Ellen Newell and Her Herbert Simon and other giants actually tried to figure out how we would handle computers and machines. Flash forward and out of uh, Pittsburgh at NYU is Vasant Dar, and he joins us this morning. We are honored to have you here, Professor. There's so much to straighten out here. What is most wrong in the new vogue of artificial intelligence? Is it covered by the media? What drives you nuts the most? Um, really happy to be here, Tom. And incidentally, Herb Simon was one of my mentors in graduate school and on my thesis committee. So I was honored to have him um, and, and get to know him. I think uh, AI has seen several hype cycles yes. in the last four decades. Full disclosure, my brother was in one of them. Continue. Yeah. So you know, we uh, so so I've I've seen several of these hype cycles during my career, and uh, we're seeing another one uh, at the moment. What do we get wrong? What's the hype that drives you nuts? Well, you know the. Uh, by the way, I, I think this one's different, right? So I, I just want to qualify that. But I, I think the uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding that AI will solve everything that machines have. Uh, uh, you know, will uh, have become incredibly intelligent and they'll replace us. And, you know, that may well happen in the very long term. But I think that we ought to have some somewhat muted expectations. I mean, we've certainly come a long way, but I think we have a really uh, long way to go. Okay, but Jack uh, Clark writing for Bloomberg four years ago says this time is different. You just alluded to that. What's different now within artificial intelligence or these machines running our lives? So I think what's, uh, what's different now is that uh, we've made a dent in 
solving perception kinds of problems. So machines have gotten a lot better at seeing, hearing, mm -hmm. uh, getting better at reading. Um, and I think what that does is it changes the nature of interaction with the machine. The machine can now ingest inputs directly from the environment right. instead of them being formatted in a way and structured in a way that it can understand, right? So it's able to <clears throat> deal with more right. unstructured kind of input like humans are. And, and that's interesting in many domains, including healthcare, but you can look at okay. images and stuff like that. But in your high school math in India, I'm sure you got to this quickly, linear regressions, and you got a signal on the back end, which is that risk that's out there, that unknowable that's out there. We're all living this right now with the emotion of two plane crashes over software in a cockpit that just flat out didn't work. That's certainly what the FAA is getting to quickly. Is there a new reliance on machines and on computer technology where that risk, that sigma, it becomes too unknowable? Well, you know, I, you're, you're raising an incredibly important question. And, you know, one of my questions really is when do we trust machines? And the way I look at trust is in terms of risk. Uh, in my mind, it boils down to how often will the machine be wrong and what are the consequences when the machine is wrong? <coughs> Things like driverless cars, right. autopilot, the consequences of error are severe. Uh, and so those kinds of decisions tend to be particularly sensitive okay, when we talk is, about handing control uh, okay, of decision making. You're, you're in class throwing chalk at somebody at NYU, the dumbest kid in engineering at NYU. And if you look at the risk distribution, we all understand it's not Gaussian, it's not a normal bell curve, like the height of our high school class. It can be a goofy distribution or whatever, which is like, if I paint 10,000 BMWs, one of them will be wrong. That's a lot different than airplanes crash. Exactly. Uh, what's, what's different about airplanes and driverless cars is you're not really interested in the distribution. You're not, exactly. You're not, you're not really interested in the average case. You're interested in the worst case, right? It's that worst case Rumsfeldian right. unknown that you're really concerned about that you may not have okay. encountered so a, a grizzled guy like you had the privilege of studying with the CMU guys at Pittsburgh a million years ago. If, if, if you look at these tech boys out in, these children out in Silicon Valley saying we're going to do driverless cars, you've got in your head all those risks out there. When do we actually get driverless cars given how each of us perceives the next traffic accident? accident? Very slowly. Uh, is is my prediction. <clears throat> I don't think this is going to happen overnight. I think we're going to have to get used to living with these new entities on the on the road. I think they'll be highly restricted to begin with, and we'll just have to wait and see what kinds of mistakes they make in the wild, right? Which we haven't seen yet, right? Those are the unknowns right. that we have yet to see, and unless we yeah. see them. We're not going to trust them. The wild is the potholes on 59th exactly. Street here in exactly. New York. If you're just joining us, Vasant Dar with us with an important conversation on all this uproar over AI. Okay, so we're going to have driverless cars, and we've established the risks that are out there. There's a whole financial thing where now we're extrapolating out billions of dollars of equity value on hopes and dreams of a technology you're actually expert in. How do you respond to finance? This has a timeline of two years, where you've got a timeline of twenty years. Well, in you know, in in finance, um, it's you know, as strange as it may sound, this this is a, a an easier problem than uh, than you know, automated uh, cars and and and, yeah. and, and uh, yeah. you know, uh, autopilot on cockpits where the consequences of error are really large. In finance, you can 
uh, actually look at the, you know, coming back to those distributions, they become important, right? Because you have to have expectations about how, how often the machine will be wrong. But the time, this is critical. The timelines, Professor, are so different from experienced grizzled guys like you versus what I hear from the tech crew. You're, you're working on two, two regimes of time, aren't you? Yes, I think that uh, it takes time to get used to looking at the behavior of these machines in any kind of domain. Um, and I think that one has to have expectations that you know when you build a machine to uh, predict financial markets, you have to you have, there's going to be some time over which you have to observe its behavior to get comfortable with it as well. So I think uh, you know I think expectations have to be realistic. You can't just think about we're going to have these intelligent machines making investment decisions. What's your timeline on self-driving cars? You're sitting with Mari Barr of GM, who's all pumped up about this. She's a legit engineer. She gets the math. What's your timeline on self-driving cars to Mary Barr? Like I said, I think it depends on the evidence that we get from the wild. <laughs> when we actually start looking at these vehicles, okay. uh, you know, we'll get some data. But if I were to sort of throw out a, you know, a, a number out right. there, I'd say that we're looking at at least five years uh, before we can get comfortable that we have enough data to trust machines with driving us around. Thank you so, so much. I would kill to have you together with one the Brinjolson up at MIT. The two of you together would just be lights out. Vasant Dar, with some NYU truly expertise in all the rage, the vogue that is artificial intelligence. I think you can tell from my questionnaire. I'm like, yeah, right. Maybe no artificial intelligence to tie a bow tie. Professor Dar, thank you so much. Uptown into the West, and it has been a flatlands for well over 12, 13, 15 years. It is called Hudson Yards, for those of you globally, on the shores of the Hudson uh, River. Our Viviana Hurtado is at the newly acclaimed Hudson Yards with six beautiful skyscrapers and a lot of hopes. Viviana, what is the major hope of this development of Hudson Yards? Well, you know, it has been said, Tom, that this development, Hudson Yards, could very well shift the culture, the arts, uh, you know, so much of the economic vibrancy of Manhattan to the west side. And so today we are just about an, less than an hour away from the real big kickoff ha happening. Um, certainly a lot of excitement. There has been music and mic chess, but that's really the hope and the vision, particularly so many people involved, uh, as you were saying, over the course of you know, 15 plus years, but really today, the show, the vision is going to belong to Related in Oxford. Viviana, how much is still the vision and how much is actual, uh, actuality at this point? How much commerce, how much uh, residential space has been yeah. filled? Yeah, definitely. So right now, what we're seeing is just about half of what is going to be the full Hudson Yards complex opening. Uh, so the public square and gardens is going to open. We know that there's residential. Half of that is going to be for sale. Half of it is going to be rental. Uh, and there's going to be the commercial space as well that opens today 
with global brands being located there. L'Oreal USA, uh, one of those big names that's taking up shop here. Speaking of taking up shop, we do have the shops, and that's being anchored by Neiman Marcus, migrating from the big D of Dallas to the Big Apple of New York City. But again, today marks what is only a, ha a half opening in many ways, an opening, but only half the project. It's going to still be several more years until the full project is uh, built and uh, ringing in, by the way, guys, at $25 billion. Viviana, I have to wonder, given all of the development in Long Island City, uh, given all of the development downtown, is there enough demand for this? Well, that's the question on everybody's mind, right, Lisa? Because the truth of the matter is we are living in a time where you have uh, retail. Uh, we're, we're just talking about retail and the shops opening up here anchored by Neiman. Well, this has not been a good retail season. Has it? Uh, and we know that here, at least in Manhattan, we saw the iconic Lord and Taylor close, Henry Bendel as well. They are making a very bold and a very big pitch here, uh, opening a bricks and mortar store when the market certainly and the conventional wisdom is saying that that customers are migrating online. Uh, and so that is going to be the big pitch. What they are hoping, of course, right. is that with this shift, uh, that's going to come to the west side. It's going to bring in a lot of foot traffic uh, of mm -hmm. tourists who are going to be uh, nearby at the High Line as well as the people who are going to work and live here. And that it's going to really give uh, this vibrancy and economic vibrancy to what some people are calling a vertical retail space. But right. that, Lisa, you and I may remember as just being called a mall. Uh, Viviana Hurtado, thank you so much. At Hudson uh, Yards overlooking the Hudson River as well. I should tell you that Michael Bloomberg, the founder, majority owner of Bloomberg LP, played a role in the development of the Hudson Yard project uh, as mayor of uh, New York. Lisa Bramowitz and Tom Keene, and what we're going to do here, like I used to do a lot, lot more, and maybe we'll get back to it in 2019 as well, is find books where you go, you hate the author because you go, this looks so interesting, so good, I have to push seven other books aside and read it. You will do that with 10 Caesars, because every time you've tried to do Roman history, your eyes have glazed over. Those high above Cayuga's waters in Ithaca have had the good fortune of ancient history for years with Barry Strauss. He's truly legendary within the study of Rome and bringing it to life. And he has succeeded in doing that with 10 Caesars, Roman emperors from Augustus to Constantine. Barry, congratulations on the accessibility of 10 Caesars. But you've written seven other books or whatever on Rome. Why 10 Caesars? Well, thanks so much uh, for the kind words. It's good to be hated. <laughs> uh, Ten Caesars. You know, I was interested in this subject ever since I saw I, Claudius in the 1970s. Uh, and it really got me into the idea that there's something special about uh, these Roman emperors. And they just had a remarkable ability to market themselves uh, and make their own stories larger than anything else that was going on in the Roman world at the time. And I think that's one of the reasons we're mm -hmm. still interested in them today. 
And this is so important, but far more important is the fact Lisa Abramowitz uh, has had uh, 47 cups of coffee in Rome and is completely up to speed <laughs> on all this. She will read your book. A- anxiously awaits the movie coming out in three years. Lisa, jump well, in here with Professor Strauss. Well, it's, it's, it's not only uh, fascinating from the personalities who made their stories larger than life, but this is the foundation of democracy as we know it. And I'm wondering, uh, with these 10 Caesars, is there a unifying factor uh, beneath their vibrant and, and, and diverse personalities? Oh, yeah. I think that um, uh, all of them were able to make change their friend. Um, and, you know, in a way, the motto of the Roman Empire is one that comes from a more recent Italian novel, and that is, if we want things to stay the same, everything has to change. And these emperors really knew how to do it. They knew how to keep Rome Roman by making it less Roman. Ironically, as that may seem, they moved the, they were able to govern without Italy, without Rome, to bring new people into the elite, um, and to accept change. And I think that's one of the reasons why the empire lasted so long. One thing that I love about the book is the titles for each of the chapters. Vespasian, the commoner, Nero, the entertainer, uh, Tiberius the tyrant. Which was your favorite Caesar to write about? I think Hadrian, you know, because he's so complicated. Uh, he's such a combination of, uh, of good and evil, of, you know, extraordinary talent and just sheer wickedness. Um, it's kind of hard to beat that. And also such a, such a vast canvas from Hadrian's Wall to Germany to Athens to Jerusalem to North Africa. You know, he's just mm-hmm. all over the place. Barry Strauss with us. The book is Ten Caesars, Roman Emperors from Augustus to Constantine. And of course, we deliver this to you folks on March 15th, the Ides of March. Barry, when you teach the course, what is the thing that we get most wrong about the Ides of March? We use it, we say it, we do it constantly. Correct us. How should we interpret Roman Ides of March? Oh, God, where to begin? Well, Caesar wasn't killed on the Capitol, um, on the Capitoline Hill, um, and he wasn't killed in the Senate, as Shakespeare says, he wasn't killed in the Senate House that we as tourists see in Rome. Uh, It all took place uh, about half a mile away in the Lauda Argentina, if you're you're walking around Rome. But I guess the biggest thing is that uh, we think that Brutus and Cassius were the guys behind it, and Brutus is the one who, has, who, um, uh, who betrayed Caesar. Well, you know, um, so I think the biggest thing actually is right. et tu, Brute. Caesar never actually said et tu, Brute. He probably just oh, groaned as he me. was being killed. Oh, come uh, but on. he might have said in Greek, you too, my son, uh, which could have been uh, a real insult if he actually said it because the room, Caesar hadn't have, had, yeah. had an affair with Brutus's mother, and the rumor was that Brutus was his illegitimate yeah. son, and so Caesar's saying, in a way, you just killed your father. That's a terrible crime, according to Roman this, law. This is, see how Strauss just crushes our illusions? So much of this lease is Rome and the excitement, and I think of Darius Aria, of the great film, film and photographer of PBS, who waltzed me around Rome one day. But for anybody who's not been to Rome, your advantage is read Barry Strauss, 10 Caesars, and what's so cool to me, Lisa, is it just comes alive. It does. And, of course, uh, these personalities are really colorful. Uh, Professor Strauss, I'd love to get your sense 
as the Roman Empire progressed early, middle, and then as it really was on the precipice of failure, uh, how did some of the leaders fail to adapt to change in a way that gave it lasting power? How did they fail to adapt to change? Yeah. Uh, well, I, uh, you know, Diocletian would be a good example of failure to adapt. Um, he, like many Romans, after a half century of wars, invasions, defeats, epidemics, inflation, he thought there was a problem with the gods. You know, the gods just weren't on Rome's side. And the way he looked at it is the way to save Rome was to get rid of the atheists which is how he looked at the Christians, because they didn't believe in the Olympian God. So he started the great prosecution of the Christians, which is uh, quite terrible, but also an utter failure. And in the end, he had to admit defeat. He is succeeded by Constantine, who's the first Christian emperor, and turns it around and mm. says, yeah, you're right, we do have a problem with the gods, but the solution is not doubling down on the old religion, it's accepting a new religion. Um, and he sets the empire on the road to becoming Christian and also to surviving. So I think Diocletian is an example of somebody who tried to dig his heels into the past and it just wasn't going to work. One other aspect that I love about the book is your highlighting of women and the relationships of some of the powerful women and the 10 Caesars throughout these 300 plus years. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, we the Romans were definitely macho and sometimes misogynistic, and we tend to just focus on the men. But all of these emperors, beginning with Augustus, knew that in order to be successful, uh, they would also have to reach out to women. Uh, Augustus is married to Livia for 54 years. It's one of the most uh, interesting partnerships uh, between um, two powerful people in history. Um, August, Livia was a Roman noble, uh, she wasn't just Augustus's wife, but she was his advisor. He consulted her. He brought her with her when he yeah. traveled around the empire. She was very shrewd, um, and uh, they were they were a true power couple working together. Uh, then we find some others like Vespasian, who rises from being a commoner to being emperor, and he's very much helped by the fact that his mistress is a slave woman who is working for. Um, one of the top imperial women, um, Caligula's grandmother, Claudius's mother, named Antonia. She helps Vespasian, and ultimately he becomes emperor, and he's now a widower. She becomes his common-law wife. So it's stories like that, yeah. people like that, who, who really uh, give us a very different well, view of the Roman Empire. We, we have more to talk about. We're going to have to have you back here to get through another seven uh, emperors as well. Ten Caesars, Roman emperors from Augustus to Constantine. It is shockingly accessible. I think of Robert Hughes' classic Rome and many, many other books, and you get through them, but uh, Barry Strauss just does it incredibly well. And, of course, you remember him as author of The Death of Caesar, which did so well as well. Ten Caesars from Cornell's Barry Strauss. We thank him today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.